Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Today, we're looking at heaven, the ultimate paradise that God creates for us. And we're going to look at the topic in the idea of that God is the source of life. And what you're going to look at today is that if you live your life as if you're the source other than God, you're going to get messed up. Because what you learn in Scripture, and we'll see this in today's title, is that God is the source of life. He is the source of reality. He is the source of meaning. This is where we derive everything. Now, you say, yeah, I get that. I understand that. Yeah, we do. But sometimes we don't live it. Because we as Christians can get off the mark a little bit, and we know better, and we start living in a reality that we start creating that's really not about God being the source for us, but ourselves or the things we have, the money we have, the things we do being the source of our life. And what you're going to see today in heaven, this picture of heaven and that paradise restored, is God is sending a message through all the images I am the source of life for you. There is nothing apart from me. Everything outside of me is death. If you try to live your life doing a bucket list, if you try to live your life according to money or according to things you do or the things you have, it ends in death. That's the message. If you look at the Old Testament and you've looked at the tabernacle and the temple and all the restrictions that applied to the Israelites of how to approach God, there was a lot of restrictions. And a lot of people understand the morality restrictions that if you were immoral, you could not approach God, obviously. That was very prominent. But the other thing most people miss is that you could not approach God with anything associated to death. That's what a lot of the laws required. For instance, if you had a flow of blood, like you saw in the gospel, the woman that had the flow of blood, she was not permitted in the temple. And there was other aspects, even of men who had parts of them that had been destroyed could not enter the temple because if you had touched a dead body, if you'd been around blood, if you had been around a corpse or a dead animal or a carcass or anything, that would pollute you as far as diseases or anything like that, anything associated with death, you could not enter the temple precincts because God's messaging was this. I don't want anything in here to be associated to me that has the connotation of death around it. I am life. Don't bring death to me. And so the temple precincts were a barricade of not only keeping immorality out, but keeping anything associated with death out of the precincts because God did not want to be associated to that. So we're going to look at this scene in the book of Revelation, chapter 22. We'll go with one through five. We'll take our time, but I want you to see the messaging in this. And here's the application. The application will be, how do we understand that God is a source of life and actually how do we live that out, okay? So we'll come to that at the end. But let's unpack it and let's parse it out. It starts in verse 1 of chapter 22. And it says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, 
proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And let's unpack that just a little bit. So in front of the throne of where God sits, you have this fount that produces living water, as it's called. And it's clear as crystal. Clear as crystal means that it's not polluted. There's no defilement. There's no contamination. And that's going to be important because later on I'm going to show you what this symbolizes. It's a real river that flows down the streets of New Jerusalem. But it also points to a symbolism of something greater than that. And it proceeds. Notice where it proceeds. It proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So it comes and emanates right from their throne. And that's like the temple in in the, the millennial reign of Christ. When Christ sits down on the throne of David in the millennium, a fountain comes out of his throne and waters the whole planet. And this harkens back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was watered by a spring, and then it branched out into four rivers that watered the entire planet. And so, it's, again, the messaging is you're returning back to Eden. But I want to talk a little bit about this living water and how important it is so we can see the messaging in it. Obviously, note the characteristic. It emanates from God. It only comes from God. No other source other than God and his throne. It's pure. It's crystal clear. Not contaminated. Okay, so hang on to those thoughts. Again, it's referring back to the Garden of Eden. It's going to water the new earth in eternity. So it's talking about the hydrological aspects of the planet. But let me give you the cultural background of this so you can understand living water. In the Middle East, as you probably are aware, water is extremely scarce. Very scarce. It's very precious in the Middle East even today. Water is a high commodity, especially in those desert, arid climates. And you can note this even in third world countries today, they have problems with water. It's contaminated, it gives diseases off, and we're very fortunate to be in America to have clean, drinkable water, and we don't really think about it. But if we project back into 2,000 years ago, let's go back to the first century, let's say, to the time of the Lord, water again was a very prized possession. But paradise was always a place that was a well-watered garden in the Hebrew mind because of that arid climate. Now, in Israel, it only rains a few months out of the year. It's pretty much like our climate. If you understand the Bakersfield climate, you will understand the Israel climate. It's very similar. Very little rain, very hot in the summer times, very same climate. Kind of a desert Mediterranean type of climate. Well, anyway, the background on this is that when rain happened in Israel... It was seen as a miraculous gift of God. It was his provision. And then they would have to collect this rainwater in cisterns. And believe it or not, they're smarter than us in California. They built cities to collect water and put them in cisterns. We don't even have enough sense to build dams and reservoirs. So we just let three million gallons go out into the Pacific Ocean. That's how stupid we are. But the Middle East understood how to catch it. And if you go to these old sites in Israel, you'll see how they caught the rainwater and how they had little gullies that took the water all the way down to cisterns, and those cisterns would fill up. Okay. So in Israel, I want you to think about this culturally. You only got water, living water, either by rain or a spring. And they considered that living water. Why? Because the spring was bursting forth the water. 
and then rain was coming down, so it was fresh water, and those were the two sources they deemed coming from God. And so they deemed those sources of water living water versus the water that was stored in a cistern, and they had a lot of it, but it was stagnant water. And so there became a difference in the kind of water they understood of the stagnant water versus the living water. And then they had another one, poisonous water, which was like the Dead Sea or the oceans, which looked good, but you couldn't drink it because it was poisonous and nothing lived around it. And so they had all these different concepts of water. Okay, in the temple, they only allowed living water in the mikvahs to bathe. You had to be bathed in living water, not stagnant water or sitting water. The water had to be flowing from a source and had to go out. Had an entrance and an exit. Okay, so follow me on this. So this is where the term in Hebrew comes. And I'm going to show you the term. Mavim Chaim. Living water. Okay, so this is early on in Israel's history. Now, what God was teaching them even about the water, and follow me on this. When God took Israel out of Egypt... He brought them to the promised land, but in the promised land, they were dependent on rain. And that was different. And even the Egyptians knew this, that in the land of Canaan, it was dependent on the God of the land giving them rain. Versus in Egypt, they didn't get any rain, and where they got their water was from the Nile, and they did flood irrigation, and that was the source of their water system. It was in direct opposition to the land of Canaan. Now watch this. What Egypt represented was that since they got their water from the Nile and they flood irrigated, it symbolized the works of man. Versus if you went to Canaan and lived in Canaan, or we call Israel, they got their water from rain, from God, from the God of heaven. And they would snowpack Mount Hermon, and that mountain would melt that's water, and it would turn into the Jordan River and flow into the Galilee and then into the Dead Sea. But here's the point. God put them in a land that they had to be dependent on him for living water versus keeping them in Egypt where they were dependent on stagnant Nile River that flood irrigated the place down there. And like I said, the Egyptians knew this. So just a point of application, life might be very tough for you and you don't like how things are going, but he actually might have put you in a situation that creates a dependency upon him, that he wants you to be dependent on the living waters, so to speak, that comes from him. He doesn't want you living in the Nile basin where that you get flood irrigation and that you can satisfy your own needs. Because if you start satisfying your own needs, you'll not be dependent on him. So believe it or not, the reason your life may be going the way it is, is because in any other situation he puts you in, you would not be dependent on him. You would start relying on your own resources. So he put Israel in a situation that they had to be dependent on living water coming to them. And they would have to obey and do what's mandated, and he would provide the rains every time. But if Israel got into a problem, which they did many times, he'd cut the rain off. Like Elijah would come and cause a three-year drought because of their disobedience. And so it was all dependent on this. Now, this Mavim Chaim, and you see a lot of people named Chaim in Israel, means living. The rabbis then 
took this and spiritualized it, this Mavim Chaim. And the idea, the, the rabbinic insight started becoming that the living water represented true knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God, versus stagnant water or dead sea water or salt water being a false knowledge of God. And this became the rabbinic thought, that if you want true knowledge of God, you go to the scriptures, if you want false knowledge of God, then you go to you know, false religions and false pagan deities and whatnot, and that re- represented the false knowledge, and that ended up in death, living water gave you life. And again, in the Hebrew mindset, knowledge is equated to relationship, that they know Yahweh, and they know him in a saving way. They use the word know, K-N-O-W, differently than we do. So to have living water was to have knowledge, saving knowledge of Yahweh. And that's where that message stayed until the days of Jesus. And then when Jesus gets on the scene, he gets very specific. He actually takes the rabbinic thought and he narrowly focuses in on it, what it means to have this true knowledge of God. Let me show you this scene that starts the idea of living water and him defining it more in detail on this video. Just real quick, a couple minutes, about two minutes, and we'll watch this video. What was being said. He left Judea and went back to Galilee. On his way there, he had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You've been married to five men and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. You are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. 
But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming. And is already here. When by the power of God's Spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is. Offering him the true worship that he wants. God is Spirit. And only by the power of his Spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. I am he. I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. But none of them said to her, What do you want? Or asked him, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the town. Come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? Okay, so with her, he starts the idea that the Messiah can give the Mavim Chaim, the living water that comes up inside of her. Okay, then he gets real specific in other passages. Let me show you this interaction with Nicodemus. I'm, I'm defining it more narrowly as the Messiah did. In John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said, And most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so we all understand the term born again means regenerated. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most surely I say to you, unless one is born of water, which means physical birth, you have to be human, and the spirit, and that's the key right there, born of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do you not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So then he defines it, and he says, this living water that I give, it creates in you a regeneration in you. It regenerates your spirit, because your spirit is dead. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And then he defines it even more at the Feast of Tabernacles later on. Watch this. On the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Mavim Chaim, living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, now he really specifies it. He says it's not only being regenerated or being given eternal life. It is the Holy Spirit. So now from the broadness of the term knowing God, how to know God with the living water knowledge, he now defines this is how you know him. This is how you will know him. Let me show you a picture. On this side, you have the body, then we have our soul, and then you have the spirit. 
what Jesus is saying is this. We're a tripart creation of God. But unfortunately, when we were born, the spirit, the green part right there, is dead. We're born with a body and a soul, but our spirit is dead to God. We're born this way. That's why we have to be born again. To be born again means you will be given a new spirit. That spirit comes back to life. God has to resurrect that inside of you and regenerate you in that aspect. Otherwise, people without Jesus are walking around with a soul and a body. They have a will, but they're having a soulish experience in life. They cannot relate to God because they don't have a spirit. And in order to get to heaven, you have to have this spirit. You have to have this new regenerated spirit inside you. Let me show you another picture. So inside man, you have the concentric circles. Outside is the carnal man, the natural man. And then as you move in, you get to the spiritual man, which means the the new nature that God gives you, that, that new spirit. And in that new spirit dwells the Holy Spirit. So if you want to know where God lives inside of you, he lives inside your new nature of being born again. That's where he resides permanently. And Jesus said, you're not going to heaven unless you have a new spirit and the Holy Spirit indwells you. That's what he was talking about, the, the mavim haim the living, that's how you know God in salvation. You must be born again. Now you think, well, I know that. That's Bible 101. Yeah, a lot of people don't. A lot of people are playing the game. They're having a soulish experience. And they're not really truly born again because they've never believed in the Messiah. So this whole deal with the river that emanates from God is a picture of the Holy Spirit regenerating people. In salvation because of belief. And that, that river of life is unpolluted because salvation is unpolluted because Messiah completed the work on the cross completely. And it's unpolluted. It's undefiled. That's why Jesus was sinless. He was the sinless lamb of God on the cross. So it's undefiled. And so this whole picture of the river is a picture of salvation and the Holy Spirit working in our lives, giving us eternal life. It's real. You will drink out of it. But it will always memorialize what happened inside of you when you believed in Jesus Christ. You were born again, given a new spirit. Okay, that's a picture of salvation. But now we move to a picture of rewards. So let's move into that in verse 2. Verse 2 says this, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Now you remember the tree of life, don't you? In the garden, there was two trees, more trees, but these are the two specific ones, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that. This is hearkening our minds back to Genesis. So you have to go back to Genesis and understand the tree of life and what was there. The tree of life would have kept Adam and Eve and any human being that had not sinned perpetually alive forever. But there must have been a test before this. And the test, the probationary period, was will they obey God and not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, they did, as you know. And so God put cherubim and a flaming sword to guard access to the tree of life. They couldn't have access to it because God did not want, out of his mercy and grace, for them to live in a perpetual state of sin forever and never get out of that. So he barred access to the tree of life. 
Now, where the tree of life went, we don't know. It might have existed all the way up to the flood. Because it's funny, in early Mesopotamian archaeology, and you see a lot of Sumerian archaeology, they always have pictures of cherubim. And you think, where did they get the concept of cherubim? These winged creatures that, that, you know, they have animal features and stuff. And it's like, well, it is theorized that people saw the cherubim guarding the tree up until Noah's day. So that would have been about several thousand years. So people were aware of what cherubim looked like. They were aware of the tree of the knowledge. And you see in ancient folklore, in ancient mythology, they always have a focus on trees, And I think it's a corruption, there's no doubt about it, a corruption of the original tree of life. Even in paganism, they surround themselves with trees. But anyway, it's gone at least from Noah's day. The flood would have wiped the Garden of Eden out. Nothing would have been left, and a new day dawned after Noah got off the ark. Okay, so it's disappeared. But now we're in heaven, we're in the new Jerusalem, and it reappears. Here's the tree of life. What is the messaging? God is restoring the garden again, but it's better this time. This is not untested, unproven holiness, because Adam was created good, and so was Eve, but it was un- they were untested. But now he's creating a new garden of Eden, but better, and with people who have been tested and passed the test because they drank from the living water and were born again. Ah, okay. So... Talk to me, Brandon, now about these rewards. Okay, well, let's talk about this. There's a tree of life, and it says this, and it bore 12 fruits, each tree, and notice it spreads out. The rootstock spreads all through the New Jerusalem and perhaps all through the New Earth, yielding its fruit every month. It gives you the idea that there's a concept of time, but this tree or these trees are producing 12 kinds of fruits Per month. There's never an out of season for it. It's constantly producing. But again, it's a rewards aspect, and I'll, I'll point that out. It's in perpetual production. Okay. And then it says this that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And a lot of people mess this whole thing up, and they don't quite understand why does it use that its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Well, you have to go to the Greek, and I'm showing you the Greek is therapia, and it means that it's in service to, it's ministering to, it's a uh, life enhancement. The Greek word, the etymology of the word, means that it's like a group of servants helping somebody. The servants are helping somebody. It's kind of the idea in the Greek. So it doesn't mean healing like you're sick, And you need healing because there is no sickness in heaven. There is no curse or anything as you'll see in the text. So the context and what follows from this has to do with rewards. There is a life enhancement given to certain individuals because of their rewards based on this life that they're giving access to the tree's fruit. They can partake of it and the tree's leaves. It's a life enhancement. It's a reward for this life. I'll explain that in just a bit. Let me show you Revelation 2, 4 through 7. This is where the rewards aspect comes in. Nevertheless, and this is to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, okay? So this is where you have to marry the two because John hopes that you remember Revelation chapter 2. 
Nevertheless, I have this against you. This is Jesus talking to the church of Ephesus. That you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. And this is not talking to unbelievers. This is talking to believers. Okay? Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's ruling over people. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the key verse. To him who overcomes. This is a specific type of Christian. Not every Christian overcomes this specific type of thing. I will give to what? To eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Oh, so this is not a blanket thing that all Christians get? No. It is only for Christians who overcome the Ephesus problem. Now, wait a second. You're throwing a whole new wrinkle in this. I told you. It's all, from this point on, it's all about rewards. Living water is a free gift because Messiah did that for you. Rewards is earned. And having access to the tree of life is just spoken right there that it's only given to Christians who overcome. Well, they say, people will say, well, I thought we all overcome. We're all overcomers in Christ. That is only in 1 John 5, 4 through 5, which you're said you're, you overcome the world if you have believed in Messiah. But Revelation 2 and 3 gets real specific that there are overcomers for rewards. Keep this in mind. Two categories. Overcomers of the world for salvation. Overcomers for specific things for rewards. Revelation 2 through 3. Keep those two categories separate because if you blend them, you will just think that everybody gets these rewards and they don't. It's separate. Salvation and rewards are completely different. And if you get that messed up, you'll start trying to earn salvation. Okay. Okay, so what's the fault of the church of Ephesus? Because I don't know about you, I want to have access to the tree of life. I want to eat its fruits. I want to take its leaves. Well, what did he say about the church of Ephesus? They had left their first love. He didn't say they weren't saved. He said they had left their first love. Well, that's the highest commandment, to love God, right? It's that love, devotion to him that we're supposed to have. What are you saying? Are you saying that there are believers out there that really don't love God? Yes! That's exactly what the scriptures are saying. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It's that some believers love God more and some love him less. You think, I can't believe that. Well, that's what the scriptures say. And let me show you all the scriptures that do say this. Number one, let me show you this real quick. If you want this, I'll email it to you, but I'm going to go real quick. How do we lose access to the tree of life in the New Jerusalem? A prolonged characterization of life that doesn't love God. How? Disobedience. He says, when you disobey, you don't love me. A lot of Christians disobey because they don't simply love him. That's why. Two, ungrateful due to the lack of seeing the depth of personal sin. Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. If you don't think that your sin has plumbed the depths and you don't think you're really that bad, you won't love him as much. Three, not growing. If you don't grow, you don't expand your capacity to love him and love others. You actually minimize your capacity to love. That's what spiritual growth is about. It's to be able to love better. Worldliness. If you start loving the world rather than him, you can't serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, right? Talked about that. Five, performance orientation. 
This is the Marthas of the world, that they're busy serving, but they won't sit at the feet of Jesus and listen like Mary. And Jesus told Martha what? She has chosen the better things. It's better to listen to me and learn rather than just to go out and serve and never learn about me. And there's a lot of Christians busying themselves with that. Six, not handling persecution or trials with God's grace. A root of bitterness erupts. A lack of love for other believers. First John talks about this. And so what you start seeing is last one, making others a priority instead of Jesus putting your family in front of of Jesus, putting your spouse in front of Jesus, putting your parents in front of Jesus, putting your kids in front of Jesus. If you do that, you start lacking love for Jesus. Now, that's just eight things. And you can see how easily a believer can get off course not loving Jesus because they can get into one of those things. Mark his words well. Only believers who overcome a lack of love for Messiah and truly are devoted and love him will get access to the tree. Not everybody will have this access. And again, it's a tough deal, but it is, it is the truth. Let's go to more rewards. Verse three. And there shall be no more curse. So the death, sickness, mourning, crying, pains, all gone. Messiah has taken our curse for us. He became a curse on the cross for us. Therefore, this, there's no rebellion waiting in the wings or waiting to explode. There's no angelic conflict anymore. It's all gone. Continue on with the idea of rewards, okay? But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. So it's referring to God's right to rule. That's what sovereignty means. It doesn't mean meticulous control. It means right to rule. So his right to rule is there. Now, keep following me on the rewards things. It's, it's going somewhere with this. It's showing who has the right to rule. God has the right to rule, and he's on the throne. Hey, man, no more globalists, no more George Soros, no more crazy politicians governing our lives. Can you imagine that? No more Nancy Pelosi's, no more Chuck Schumer's, no more Clinton's, no more Obama's, no more Putin's, no more Angela Merkel. They're gone. Wouldn't that be a fantastic day? No more Gavin Newsom's? Wow, you gotta be kidding me, man. Only Jesus and the Father ruling over us? Man, you can't get better than that. But now, let's watch, watch what he says. And his servants shall serve him. Now, wait a second. Not every believer is a servant. And it continues on this idea of rewards. Servants are the ones who are called doulosis in Greek. Bond servants. They are the ones that give up their life and serve Messiah now. See, you can become a doulos right now, but you have to serve him. And you're going to pay a price to serve him. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your money. It's going to disrupt your life. You're not going to be able to live the way you wanted to live. You're going to have, because if you become a servant, a doulos, that's a decision you make. And it's a decision to serve Christ and him alone. And you put everything else second to that. If you do that, you are now considered a doulos. Not every believer is a doulos. I'm sorry. It's just not, it's not. People think that they're going to get all this stuff. They're not. They have to be a doulos. Now, it says the doulos will serve him. Well, of course, they served him now in in this life. Of course, they're going to have the privilege of serving him at a higher level 
in heaven. And that would be a privilege. That's a reward for those who serve him now. You will, you, right now, if you're, you're a doulos, you're increasing your capacity for what you can do for him in the next life. You can serve him more. That's the reward. You want to be able to serve him more. You don't want to be the guy street sweeping, cleaning toilets, because you didn't serve him here because you served yourself. You want to be that guy that's at the highest level saying, I have a job for you. I can entrust this to you. And I need you to explore the 10 galaxies that I've created or whatever. You want to be that guy, that gal, the do losses. Because what happens to the do losses? Well, it says, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. These are rewards. Now you think, well, won't we all see face-to-face? Absolutely. You will see face-to-face with Jesus at the Bema seat. There's no doubt about it. This term, face-to-face, is a Hebraic understanding. Remember the Deuteronomic, Aaronic blessing? May his face shine upon you. Have you heard that term? May his face shine upon you. That's a term of blessing. That's a term of reward. It is not a guarantee to all believers. So in order to see God face to face, which means you, you, you're in his presence and you can see him, but, but it means getting close to him. It means relationally being with him in a close relationship, much like John was or the three disciples. And you know how it, concentric circles out, you know, came out from the Messiah. You had the one, and then you had the three, and then you had the 12, and then you had the 70, and then you had the 120. Ask yourself, what group are you currently in? Am I in the 120? I follow Jesus at a certain distance. I do follow him, but I'm at a certain distance. Or am I part of the 70? Or am I part of the 12? Or am I part of the three, Peter, James, and John? Or am I John, his best friend? Ask yourself, what circle are you in? What group are you in? This group of doulosses get front row seats, man. They are like with John, James, and Peter. They're right there with him, serving him. And notice what they're given, identification. And his name shall be on their foreheads. This is another reward. It's identification. Well, what do you mean? Well, again, it's explained that this reward is only given to overcomers. And we go to Revelation 3 to see this. Revelation chapter 3 Here's the term, overcomers. He who overcomes, overcomes what? I'll talk about that. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The temple, he's talking about the new Jerusalem. The pillar means he's a permanent fixture. He's permanent. Because of his rewarding, he's a permanent fixture close to God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Again, this is a reward. Okay, so what's the overcoming? He's talking to the Philadelphia church in context, okay? So follow this. What did the church of Philadelphia need to overcome? What do I and you need to overcome in order to get his identification mark on us for rewards? Let's see. Because or since you have kept my command to persevere. Literally, it means my word of patient endurance. Okay, explain that a little bit. Let me unpack this. 
The Philadelphia church was actually doing this. This wasn't something they lacked. They were actually doing. He says, keep on keeping on on this specific one. Okay, so what is this command to persevere or my word of patient endurance? It means this, that these believers did not give up on the message, the principles, the law, and the proper interpretation of the Bible, they did not give it up for the persecutions they suffered from. They stood for the truth of God despite what was being thrown at them. They weren't twisting the scripture. They weren't accommodating the culture. They were saying, hey man, black and white, this is the deal. Gay marriage, wrong Homosexuality, lesbianism, wrong. And they didn't shrink back. They didn't say, well, you know, I just wonder if their people are born that way and this and that. They didn't do that. The Philadelphia church stuck to their guns and saying, this is what Messiah said. We are not accommodating the culture and I'm going to do it until I die. That gets the identity of Messiah on your forehead. And do you know where it comes from? He said this to believers, not unbelievers. If you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you in front of my father. The idea of getting his name on your forehead as a crown means that he is not ashamed of you in front of his father and saying, this one stood for me. This one stood for my word. This one, despite being called all kinds of names, despite being beaten, despite being thrown in jail, despite losing their job for standing for the truth, was not ashamed of me. Therefore, I am not ashamed of him, Father. Give him that reward of identification. That's what identification means. It has to do with not being ashamed of us. Will there be many people ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ? Of course, 1 John chapter 2 talks all about that there will be some who are ashamed at his coming. It uses the word shame. The word shame is there right in the text. So it's the idea then of identification. Let me show you where it comes from. It's the Hebrew mindset. Let me show you this crown. This crown, this is what the high priest is going to wear in the future, I guess, at the tribulation temple. And what it says in Hebrew is holy unto God. This is what the mitre the high priest would wear over his turban. I think I have some other pictures. Let me show you. So as you see the turban, the blue turban, and then the, the crown is right across the forehead. That's what it's referring to. It's that. Because we'll be priests in heaven, right? And so those special priests, overcomers, will have that golden crown saying, holy unto the Lord, given to them. It's a very special crown. Now, here's the deal. You might say, you know what, Brandon? I I don't get this, dude. I don't get these rewards. I really don't understand what the reward is eating from the tree of life. And I don't understand the the eating the fruit. And I don't, what's the big deal about the identification on the, the head? Here's the deal. Why do you think it's intentionally vague? Why do you think it's intentionally like, hey, man, he didn't explain a lot about this, but he, he put it out there and said, you're going to get this reward, you're going to get that reward, you're going to get this reward. And he left it just out there hanging, saying, I'm not going to explain it. 
I'm just telling you, this is what you need to do in order to get this reward. It is intentionally vague. Because if he wanted to spell it out, he could have. But here's the reason. It is so beyond our natural ability to get it, to understand the concepts behind it, or what happens in that environment. If he did try to explain it, it would confuse us even more. We can't grasp sometimes that kind of reality and the meaning behind it because we have to actually be there and you have to experience it. Have you ever had one of those things where you had an amazing experience and you're trying to tell somebody, hey man, you really got to try this or try that, and they just look at you like a calf at a new gate and they're like, huh? What are you talking about? And you have to say what? I guess you had to be there, right? Because they don't get it. Well, in trying to think of some analogies to understand this, because this may not float your boat. You're like, ah, eating from a tree and, and getting an identity. What's that? If Jesus says it's important, oh, it's important. And you have to trust it on faith. It would be like going back in time. And let's say you go back in time to the Wright brothers where they're developing the airplane. And they're starting to get the airplane going, right? And it's starting to fly and everything. And, and you come back from 2018 and you come back and tell everybody watching the Wright brothers fly a new plane, say, hey, I want to tell you something. In the future, I'm from the future, but in the future, you're really going to want to fly first class. <laughs> now, if I told that someone in the early 1900s, what would they think? I don't know what you're talking about. And say, hey, dude, I'm going to tell you what, on those trips to Australia, it's a 17-hour flight, you're really going to want to be first class. And they're going to look at you and say, what are you talking about flying to Australia? Yeah, it's a straight flight, dude, 17 hours. Like, what? We can barely get this thing off the ground. And then you would come back and you would say, now, wait a second. Now, this is why. Because you have your own cubby and you actually have your own bed and you have your own TV. You can watch all kinds of movies and stuff and it's great. And they serve you food. They serve you food on a plane? Yeah, they serve you food on a plane. And then you can lay down, take a nap, and you're really going to want a first class. The bathrooms are better. They're more spacious. They smell better. And you're really going to want that. If I kept going with them, they were like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Food on an airplane? Yeah. Waitresses and what are they called? Stewards and stewardesses? I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, one day it's going to be like this. But you really want to earn enough credits to get on that first class one because you want to ride first class. And so whatever I would tell them to do, you need to do this to earn the credits for first class. The issue is just do what I'm telling you to do so you can get on the first class. That's what... God is trying to say is, I can't explain this to you until you're there, but the things I can tell you to do, you need to do that. You need to do it because you're going to want to eat from the tree of life. You're going to want to have me identified with you on your forehead. You're going to want that. And you have to take it by faith, which is difficult because he doesn't explain it. He just says, do it. It's important. You're going to want it. And so we take that by faith. Let's return to the text, verse 5. There shall be no more night there. We dealt with that. There shall need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And that's, we talked about that being the Shekinah glory, and there's no darkness there, which is a symbolic messaging to there's no sin there. Darkness is symbolized with judgment and sin, and it's not there anymore. So we dealt with that. But here's the other aspect of reward. And they shall reign forever and ever. Who's the they? Again, in, t- in context, it's the do losses. It's the servants. So notice what the servants get. They see God face to face. 
They partake of the tree of life. They are identified. And the last one, they actually get to rule and reign. They reign. Not every saint reigns. And that's clear from the scriptures of Revelation 2, Revelation 3, and I don't have time to go into it. But if you look at Revelation 2 with the church of Thyatira, and then you look at the church of Laodicea, both churches are promised rule and reigning, but promised to only overcomers. You have to overcome Thyatira. What do you mean? You have to overcome allowing false doctrine to come into your life and you living through with false doctrine. You have to be clean and pure and unpolluted doctrinally. Laodicea, you can't become worldly. If you become worldly, you will be ineffective, lukewarm, which means I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, and you lose the ability to rule and reign. So those two things, unpolluted doctrine, and you have to overcome worldliness. If you do that, you get to rule and reign. How that goes into effect, I don't know what to tell you. All I'm just saying is Jesus saying this is important. You're going to want to rule and reign. You don't want to sweep gutters. You don't want to clean bathrooms, so to speak. I'm using that tongue in cheek, but I'm saying you don't want to be on the lowest end in heaven. You don't want to be that. Well, people say, well, I just hope I can get to heaven. Man, that's immaturity talking. That's immaturity. I hope I just get there. No, 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 no. That's not the mindset you should have. The mindset is, what do I got to do to get these rewards? And, and he wants you to have them. He wants to give them to you. It's just like a parent who wants to give an inheritance to their kids. But what if your kids are a bunch of degenerates? You're like, do I really want to give all the money I have that I've saved up to these bunch of degenerates? I want a kid who, who's faithful and is going to do good in business and use the money well. He wants to do it, but again, some kids won't behave, will they? Hmm. Let's go to some application, and we'll finish on this. Application, obviously, it's simple. God is a source of life. You get it, and everything emanates from him. Okay, I got that. But I'm going to tell you what. It's real easy to get off understanding that he's the source of life. Real easy. And it's not like an overnight thing. It's like little by little by little. And before you know it, you're out here and you're not depending on him. Okay. Let me explain this a little bit. If you go back to Adam and Eve, they decided that they wanted to be the source of their own life. They wanted to create their own reality, create their own everything they need, so to speak. They didn't want to be dependent on him. They wanted to be independent of him. And in fact, they were convinced by Satan to become their own gods, that you could be like him. What was being like him? All reality, all life flowed from him. And Satan told them, no, you can be your own reality. You can define your own reality and you can establish your own life apart from him. That's the danger you and I face. Establishing a life even a Christian life, apart from him. Is that being done by Christians? Of course. That's why Paul says people were building on other foundations rather than the foundation of the Messiah. Of course they can do that. Let me give you a story real quick. And this is a case study I read this week, couple, typical couple. But the case study I was reading is, is about Christians who serve Messiah but are detached from him as a source of their life. 
me give you an example. This is how it goes. The case study names were Rick and Mary, okay? Very active in ministry, serving the Lord at their local church, and teaching people about the supernatural aspects of God and the blessings that God can bring their lives. And, and they prayed for people and ministered to people. Very typical, very typical. But here's what would happen. Hindrances would come up in their lives. Trouble would come up in their lives. Problems, whatever. Problems with family. And instead of bringing their stuff to God, they simply argued about it. That's all they did. They just argued about it. And would not take their stuff before God and say, reveal to us what's going on. Reveal to us the solutions. What should we do? No, what they figured out, we'll just handle it ourselves. And here's the deal. And we all have it. They had baggage. We all have it. So Rick and Mary, Rick came from an out-of-control background. He comes from a background where there's no supervision. It's just out-of-control, Lord of the Flies type of thing. And just kids running loose, doing anything they want. Very out-of-control background. Mary, on the other hand, comes from a background that's very critical, judgmental, hard. So they both have issues. They have issues that are unresolved, unfixed, broken, unhealed, not moving in the right direction. So, of course, when bumps in the road happen, all they do is fight. And their marriage started waning. And their marriage started getting worse. And they kept fighting and fighting and fighting. Because of all these other issues, they would not bring their issues to God. This thought, well, we'll fight. Well, the stress levels start going up, okay? Stress from the job, for Rick's job, high stress level, high demand. So what do they start doing? They start using themselves as their own resource to cope with their own issues because they won't bring their issues to God. So in order to cope with their own issues, they devise their own schemes in their head. This is very typical. So what Rick started doing is he started hitting the booze, Started doing a little drugs, a little marijuana on the side, you know. And then he started looking at porn. Mary, on the other hand, you know what she did? She started overeating. She turned to food. And she started packing on weight, packing on weight, packing on weight. Both individuals, because they refused to go to God, or trying to handle their own issues their own way. And then they devised their own coping mechanisms and that's how they're living life. And at the same time, they're teaching Sunday school. That's typical. No joke. A lot of Christians are doing that. And they're completely cut off from God, handling their own issues. And then they put the Sunday smile on for Sunday. And they go about work. And they look like worker bees. And oh, aren't they spiritual? You're not spiritual because you serve. You're only spiritual if you're tapped into the source of life. And if you're not tapped in, you're playing a game. This is all a game then. Because if you serve and you're spinning 17 plates and you're really not tapped into the source of life, why are you doing that? Are you insane? Or are you just simply doing that for the praise of men? A lot of people are playing the game. And they've turned to their own resources to fix themselves their retirement, their money, their job, their family, their spouse, their kids, making other people happy, being a control freak, drugs, alcohol, porn, you name it, they do it. And it's because they won't go to the source of the living water. Look, it's hard because here's the deal. When you go before God, you have to bear your soul. You have to say, man, this is what it is. This is what I've done. And I need you to fix this because I can't. 
this thing is so messed up, I don't know where to begin. And that's a good place to be. And then at that point, he can start working with you. And then he will bring other people in your life that actually have the ability to navigate you through the waters, to navigate you through the issues, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain that you're dealing with. He has actually people that can help you in that. But you have to be willing to talk to those people. You have to be willing to bear it out. And you have to be willing to be Mary rather than Martha. You can busy yourself all around. But if you're not willing to sit at the Messiah's feet and learn from him and actually take in what he's giving you, you're not going anywhere. I'm your pastor. I'm trying to help you. And this book of Revelation is trying to say, man, when we get there, these things are important, but you've got to do these things now. And there's no time to wait. Your life could be demanded of you right now. I just went to a funeral of one of the guys I did ministry with for, gosh, I don't know, 15 years. Even before I got into ministry, I was doing ministry with John Shirley. And um, the Lord took him home. He's only 65 years old, man. The Lord took him home. He had a stroke about four years ago, and um, his health just went really bad, and everything started collapsing inside of him. And the Lord took him home. And uh, it was amazing at the funeral, his son got up there and uh, spoke, and he says, if, <laughs> he starts with this, if you guys were led to the Lord, stand up. And like half the crowd stood up. And he goes, if you were married by John, stand up. And the other part of the crowd stood up. And he goes, if you've counseled with John, stand up. And the whole floor, it's about a seven to 900 people on the floor. Everyone was standing at the end. And you think, that's how life well lived. Look at all the people he impacted. Look at all the people's lives he touched, just here and there and stuff like that. And I thought, wow, he's going to get a big reward for that because he affected a lot of people. I just wonder if at our funeral, if someone got up there and say, would... Everyone stand up who's been impacted by this individual. How many people would stand up? I wonder about that, even about myself. And it's a good time to think about that. And I was reflecting, I'm like, how many lives have I touched? Because if I live a selfish life, I won't touch anybody. I won't make an impact on anybody. And it'll be a very small funeral with a handful of people when they lay me to rest. I hope... That at your funeral, if the rapture doesn't happen, I pray the rapture happens before this, but at your funeral, they can say, would everyone stand up who's been impacted by this person? And the whole crowd gets up. I hope that, because that's the kind of stuff that's going to get rewarded at the end. Jesus said it this way, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die because he's the source, he's the resurrection, right? And then he ended it this way. Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus is the source for your life? Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.